Hi, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, a weekly talk show hosted by the Express News Group, publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com, and featuring distinguished journalists from the East End to discuss what's news on the North and South Forks of Long Island. Program airs on WLIW FM 88.3 on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. I'm Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. I'm joined today by my co-host, Annette Hinkle, the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Annette. Hey, Bill. How you doing? We are joined today by a great panel of uh, our regular all-stars here. David Rattray, editor of the East Hampton Star. Good morning, David. Hello, Annette and Bill. <laughs> Uh, Denise Sevilladity, editor and publisher of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning, Bill. Hello, Annette. How are you doing today? And Steve Wick, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Good morning, Steve. Good morning to everyone. Nice to be here. I just want to uh, take a quick moment to note that WLIW is in the middle of a fun drive. All listeners who make a single donation of $120 or a monthly sustaining donation of $10 a month will receive their choice of the ever popular tote bag or a pair of coffee mugs or the brand new WLIWFM beach towel. And you will also get membership in WLIW 21, the TV station, including access to Passport, the streaming service, outstanding PBS programming. Donate today by going online at WLIWFM.org or by calling 1-800-262-0717. And it's really important um, for people to donate to bring, uh, bring the people programs like ours and all the other wonderful programs on WLIW. Um, so let's start off today. Let's kick off the um, uh, COVID-19 vaccination rate has reached 70% of people in New York State at least getting their first shot, which uh, accounted for Governor Cuomo this week easing restrictions. Um, I guess he lifted all, all the pretty much all the restrictions right on, um, on on businesses, and we are in a celebratory uh, press conference. He announced we are back to normal, whatever normal is. I'm curious to see whether um, how quickly businesses are able to um, to ease those restrictions. I would I would think that they would want to do so quickly, but I'm thinking bars and restaurants that went into all that effort to um, to institute some of those restrictions, distancing and plexiglass and and all that. It might take a little while, but I'm sure they're anxious to get back to uh, full capacity. What are you guys hearing? I think some of the bars are actually doing better without being open as bars. Like I've heard stories of um, the table service is actually bringing in more money than having a bar scene. Um, so it's, you know, it's going to be interesting. You know, it, it, everything, it's like steering a ship. It takes a little while, I think, to get people to readjust. And I, I think some people, even though, you know, we're told it's safe, but, you know, I think there's a lot of habits that die hard, you know, sitting at a bar next to somebody without plexiglass, it's sort of like that's um, going to be, I think, a, it's going to take a little while, I think, for people to get used to doing that again. I, I went to, to have my car 
service yesterday morning um and i, I walked into there walked into the the garage and there's a big sign wear your masks and all that but none of the guys behind the counter are wearing masks so i asked the guy i said you guys you know enforcing the mask policy and and he said no not if you've been vaccinated so i took my mask off and went in the waiting room and there were maybe two or three other people in the waiting room without masks but everybody was still wearing masks and this one group of ladies came in and they were very fastidious about uh you know putting on the uh, hand sanitizer stuff. So I think you're right in that. I think it's going to take a little time for people to feel feel safe again. In, in I don't like dipping. You got to jump in or not. You know? it, it's interesting in Greenport because in the spring, uh, they set up those parklets again that they'd had before uh, last summer and into the fall that, you know, extending the areas you could eat on the sidewalk on uh, on on Front Street. And it, it makes part of Front Street one way. It restricts traffic and stops parking in those areas. And now, of course, there's no restrictions. So there are, the parklets are already in place. So it's unclear whether they'll turn around and remove them or just leave them there into the fall and take them off out again. But they're not needed now. Yeah, I know on the, on the South Fork, though, the outdoor dining was so popular last summer. And, and I think it was everybody was just... <laughs> I, I don't know, surprise, but everybody was like, you know, really happy that that it worked out and, and happy to 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 welcome in the outdoor dining. And it created mm. a new vibrance in a lot of the little village areas and, and stuff. And, and I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, although the restrictions are eased, those restaurants aren't going to want to give that up. And I don't know that the municipalities will, too, to go back to the days of no outdoor dining. Right. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, there's two two factors. People like it. Um, the weather has been really good. And of course, it is a way because it's very difficult to count to add some capacity to your restaurant, you know, by by having maybe one or two extra tables outdoors plus your indoor service or, or whatever. I mean, technically, you're not supposed to increase the number of patrons you can have on your property, but basically that's impossible to enforce. So there's a, a real incentive on both sides. It's fun and the restaurant tours like it. I'll tell you a story really quickly. Last night, um, we went out to dinner at an outdoor place in East Hampton and they, they told us as, as we, we called, do we need a reservation? Um, that they only were expecting about 20 people, no problem. When we got there, there were people who had been waiting more than an hour for their food. The restaurant outdoors was packed. There was a huge wait staff. And, they, you know, basically, I think there's so much exuberance about trying to get out there. And, and the people just at the spur of the moment, like, let's do it. Let's let's go out that this little place was just overwhelmed. I think that's going to be the story for a while. Um here as, you know, between the crunch and employees that many of these places have and this, you know, just desire to get out there and spend money and have you know, fun and see friends. Um, it's, it's, you know, we may we may wish for the, the old fashioned days of just takeout. It, it was really <laughs> we actually left. We left before we got our food because it was late and I had to get into work early and it was around 930. And we, you know, we hadn't gotten appetizers. Um, Luckily, someone had a baguette in the car, so we were passing that around. It was pretty fun. <laughs> oh, well, we've spoken to um, restaurant owners in Riverhead who are concerned about uh, whether people have a comfort level to come back inside. Um, some mm. have said that they are not changing, as you mentioned, the things that they've done inside their restaurants um, to maintain social distancing so that people do feel comfortable. Um, and others are uh, already lobbying to keep the um, 
outdoor dining for at least another couple of years. Um, they, you know, it's been, it's been a good thing. Um, I think comfort level of people, I think restaurants that cater to a younger crowd are um, having more success getting people in. I mean, you see some places that are sort of jamming and other places, you know, that are not. Um, a lot of people are still wearing masks everywhere they go. I mean, I see it. Uh, I know I, I've done that myself in the supermarkets as the uh, return to the grand reopening, et cetera, happened. Um, because I don't know, you just really don't. And I'm vaccinated, fully vaccinated. But, you know, there's all these these variants creeping around. You hear new news of things all the time. You know, the Delta variant this year. And who knows what's going to happen? I, I think don't know. I'm a little introverted, too. I feel like after a year inside, it just feels weird to go out and be social. Like, you know, I'm not real sure that I like any of my clothes anymore, that anything fits right, or that I really, really, really want to see people. You know, I'm kind of not sure I want to do that yet. <laughs> I like being an introvert. I never thought of that uh, of myself yeah. as an introvert. But I know I've, I've always been a little introverted, so you know I'm kind of accustomed to it. But I'm kind of the. I thought I was going to be one of those. I talked about. I'm, I'm just going to keep wearing the mask for a, for a while, for a long time, or whatever. And now I just find myself. I was walking through Stop and Shop the other day without a mask and felt to just to see how it felt and felt really comfortable. And I took my mask off at the car dealership yesterday. And um, I, I think I'm, I'm probably there. I, I don't know if I went to a big outdoor concert or something, I might wear a mask, but I'm feeling pretty safe. The positivity rate is under half a percent in, in New York. I'm fully vaccinated. I don't know. I, 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 I suppose I was waiting for there was going to be this one day like this week when, you know, when, when the governor made his announcement and everybody was going to stand up and throw their hands up, oh, the, you know, the war on, on COVID is over, kind of like the end of World War II celebrations and stuff. And I was looking for a nurse to kiss and all that. But um, I, I think it's going to be a much slower, you know, like, like Denise said, it just a slower easing into back to normal watching the you know, the variants and, you know, and all that type of stuff. It also feels like the businesses are setting the tone. Like, you know, my husband and I debating, do we wear a mask in this store or not? So if we walk in and none of the employees are wearing masks, I feel like then we are like, oh, okay, we can do this. But if everybody in the store who works there is wearing a mask, I'm more inclined, I think, to leave mine on. The, the vaccination rates have been interesting. You know, um, in East Hampton, the supervisor recently said that, you know, they, they vaccinated so many people now they're looking for arms to put the needles in. Um, so there's something like over 72.5, I think, percent of East Hampton area residents. And then in Amagansett and Montauk, uh, over 83 percent of adults have been vaccinated. So uh, the, the success rate in that regard has been really tremendous here. Yeah, it's absolutely true on the North Fork as well. I, I, in the last few days, just going to different places, I haven't seen that many people with masks. It's kind of surprising. I agree. The library in Kutchog, uh, in Cullen, I see staff wearing masks. Um, but I don't see people, that many people coming in wearing them. So it's, it's it, obviously there's room to be cautious, but it's definitely giving away. I wonder if it's going to be one of those things where you just wake up one day and realize realize that nobody's wearing masks anymore and, and not sure when exactly that happened. And yeah. we'll see old uh, repeats of TV shows with people wearing masks and <laughs> look back on the days of COVID. I hope that's the case. I really, I really do. Um, should let, Let's move on. I, I know that, Steve, you wanted to talk about a story that you guys did about a, a civil dispute over a, a, a 
business, a, a food food service business in, in Orient. You want to uh, talk yeah, there's a little bit There's a little on shop uh, on Village Lane uh, called Opties and Dinghies. Um, our headline in the Suffolk Times yesterday is Ugly Battle on Village Lane. And y- you don't think of Village Lane in Orient as the place where there's going to be bitter infighting, but um, this is quite ugly um, with lots of charges back and forth, including racism. Um, but basically you have a couple who took over kind of an iconic building that had been a, a, a ice cream shop and turned it into something a little bit different, uh, including selling uh, some different kind of food items that seem to bother some people. And you have landlords who clearly want them out. I mean, police have been called, uh, building inspectors have been called. Um, it's, it's just gotten really over the top. It's not like anything I've seen uh, in my short time being a newspaper editor out here, but that it's taking place on Village Lane uh, in Orient is really remarkable. And it's really quite ugly. Uh, Reading your story, it was so this was traditionally an ice cream shop, and that was even written into to the lease that it would continue to be an ice cream shop. Correct. It was a five year lease. Yeah. And then the the owners of the building are saying that they've expanded the food choices to to at least their point of view is they've expanded a few choices that don't fit the old building that they're in. Hmm. Um, And they're complaining about it. And uh, the the rent is very low. It continues for a couple more years. And it's like a thousand dollars a month low. Right. I mean, that's it's really low. And but Hmm. the changing of the menu seems to have bothered people. Um, because it's, because it's, because it's Asian food. I mean, was that, that the well, implication? You, know, you could see in the story that some people are saying that this is, uh, anti-Asian, uh, that people are using the word racism. Uh, other mm-hmm. people are just saying that it's upset the, uh, the order in this very staid little place. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. ugly. It's, it's really, really ugly. We have a letter in, in the paper yesterday of, uh, an Orient woman sort of defending the, the, uh, landlords. Um, there's a million comments on the story itself. Yeah, yes. Orient really is remarkable. It's like a it's like a little uh, time capsule. I mean, you call it stayed, but it's it's more than that. You know, it's 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 like you can't even believe it's real. Sort of when you when you go. I in talked there. to someone, David, who said, "I said, what is this really all about? And mm. is it really all about someone offering different food items in this place? And it's just that no, we can't handle change here. It's just it's too <laughs> much." Mm. And it's just yeah. a lot of name calling. Mm. Um, racism is being thrown around. Um, mm. It's pretty ugly stuff. And the mm. police have been called. Building inspectors have been called. Uh, no violations have been found. Um, but it's going to go on. Mm. Go on as long as the lease is is in effect, right? Yeah, you could a couple you could more years. Reality. You could send cameras out there and make a reality TV show about this. It's really, really <laughs> hey, maybe we should do that. Right, that could be your next big viral hit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's when you when you read the story, I would think someone coming in from the outside would read the story and say, "Really, seriously?" But it's well, it sounds like the plot line of "Do the Right Thing." Remember that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spike Lee. Close. Well, well, I, I mean, what kind of were, food items are they selling? That's what I'd like to know. I haven't read the story yet. I bought the paper, but well, there's some Chinese food items that um, some people don't seem to like. It because <laughs> they're bad, or they just no. I, I think it's because it's not just ice cream anymore, and yeah, well, the, the landlords are saying that the building wasn't designed for this kind of cooking. 
that the you know grease traps and fire alarms and it's uh, the building wasn't prepared for this they didn't know this was coming they thought it was mm. going to be ice cream again mm. so that rankles people um but they have dumplings <laughs> are, are the dumplings you know, any good steve have you had them i have not gone out i'm going to try to go out there today because i want to do something else in greenport um with another story that broke there a couple of days ago but uh, i'll go by i'll test the dumplings for you you know, ice cream is a very, very big deal. And people are very sensitive about it. On uh, In East Hampton Village, the Scoop Du Jour ice cream store is no more. It's been gone for a couple of months. And, you know, folks arrived more Memorial Day weekend thinking they were going to go down and get some ice cream, um, you know, after dinner, which was really a ritual. There would be nighttime lines uh, at this place. And, you know, it's got a for rent sign in the window. Um one man just whipped out his cell phone right there and called called the number to ask whether he could lease the place and get the old uh, scoop du jour operators back in there for the summer. Um, it's it's one of those things. Ice cream is more than just food. It's it's ritual. It's family. It's what you do every summer. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, issues of landlord and tenant aside, I do think there's, you know, it's probably there's no other food group that would would create quite the same level of intensity. I think in this case, um, you know, one of the one of the operators of the new business, Miss Lynn, I mean, she's offering a really interesting menu. I mean, there's dumplings, there's scallion pancakes, spring rolls, noodles and whether that's the driving force of this bothering people or rather, or whether it's really a dispute over the rent being too low and then that maybe the landlords signed a bad lease. I don't know, but it's, it's spawned this kind of ugliness um, in a place that you normally think of as very quiet and uh, very kind mm. of dignified. Mm. Uh, nobody yells at anybody. No one calls the police on their neighbors. <laughs> and uh, I think yeah, if maybe they're not white, you know, <laughs> I think if you're a beat cop, it's like, really? I've got to go back out there again? <laughs> yeah, ice cream war. Yeah, ice cream what war. What a story. That's great. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group. My co-host, Annette Hinkle, the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. We're joined by our panel, David Rattray, Editor of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti, Editor and Publisher of Riverhead Local, Steve Wick, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Take a moment and declare your support for WLIWFM and listener favorites like the Afternoon Ramble, All Things Considered, Heart of the East End, the Urban Jazz Experience Marketplace, Long Island Morning Edition, Metro Focus, PBS NewsHour, and of course, Behind the Headlines by donating now online at WLIWFM.org or by calling one 800 262 one seven. Um, let's move on. So tomorrow is Juneteenth. We were talking about this earlier, and Juneteenth is a holiday that I will admit that I hadn't heard of um, before um, before last year, or or maybe maybe the year before. And I feel bad about that, but I I think it's it's fairly common. It it, it was like we we likened it to the to the Tulsa massacre from a hundred years ago that had somehow escaped white history um, and, and was something that, that wasn't talked about. But there are a couple of different celebrations tomorrow. I know that um, 
in uh, in Southampton, there's going to be a celebration at Agalon Park. I think that begins at 11 a.m. Um, there's also going to be the opening of the African-American Museum in Southampton, and that was timed to coincide with Juneteenth. I think there's um, there are some events um, Saturday, but I, I think the uh, the grand opening is is on Sunday. And you guys, I think you've all written a little bit about Juneteenth either last year or this year. And I know, uh, Denise, you had a, a, a big story on, on Friday about Juneteenth. Well, we've, um, we've been covering it, you know, every year um, in Riverhead. And, um, we, you know, back in the day when I was at the News Review, uh, you know, we covered it then. Tim Gannon and I were walking into the annual Juneteenth essay contest at Pulaski Street School the other day together. And he turned to me and he said, remember when Barbara Ellen Koch and Bubby Brown were the only two people who knew what Juneteenth was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barbara Ellen Koch, of course, was our uh, photographer at the news review. She, um, you know, encouraged us to put that on our story list. And uh, we covered it every year there at the paper. And I've been covering it since. Great. Uh, there is a party a celebration in uh, a local park. And um, this et- essay contest, every year they ask fifth graders to um, write from the perspective of uh, an enslaved child in 1865 in mm. Galveston, Texas, uh, learning about their newfound freedom. And uh, some of the essays are really quite interesting and uh, moving. Um, there was okay. a couple of them that, that were like that on Wednesday. Uh, I put up a story about it this morning. Um, the, the thing is how, is how important it is to remember. That's what uh, Robert Bubby Brown uh, said and, and drove home to the kids on, on Wednesday. And I mean, you know, you talk about uh, somehow not being aware of these things. Well, it's not, that wasn't really by accident so much as, I don't know, not by accident, but it, it, it's not surprising that people uh, with our background and our race uh, weren't aware of it. And it's not surprising that it wasn't, you know, this or the Tulsa massacre you know, that these things were not recorded either in the first draft of history, what we're supposed to be doing, or by the historians that wrote the books, because history has always been pretty much written by white people, usually white men, and that you were talking before about, you know, women being left out of history, and David, you you were talking about that too. Um, You know, it's because of who the authors are and what their perspectives are and what they deem important, you know? I think what's interesting is they're talking now about changing what can be taught in schools in some of these states where, you know, the whole right. idea of teaching, um, you know, critical race theory and that sort of thing is is under the microscope. And and it may be that, you know, as we get June, Juneteenth would be a national holiday, there's going to be places they're going to push back against even recognizing it. I, I yeah. wouldn't doubt it because, you know, let's face it, the same people who are writing the laws are often, especially in some states, are often the same people who have committed this uh, crime against history, if you will, as, as far as I'm concerned. So, of course, they want to hold on to their, you know, what I would say is revisionist history for all mm. of us. Um, I, I think the lesson of, of June, uh, Juneteenth uh, kind of fits into what we've all been talking about for a while, but what we're writing about on both forks, and that is the, um, the really tragic omission of a lot of history out here. Um, David's Plain Sight Project, our project over here, an attempt to give names to slaves to document the extent of it. 
Um, I had a column on it two weeks ago, and some of the comments on that story are really um, shocking. People don't want to know it. They get angry about it. They think you're shoving something down their throats. Probably 99% of America had no idea what Juneteenth was. It was certainly well-known in Texas because that's where that event took place. Do you want to just give a brief history of, of what, what the holiday the Juneteenth is? Marks? when Union soldiers arriving in a part of Texas um, two months after the end of the Civil War, and, and I think it was in late June 1865, told um black people there who still thought they were enslaved that in fact slavery had ended so it, it reached its last place there um in june uh, in texas and that's juneteenth and it was pretty much celebrated locally there for years i don't know that most people knew about it in the rest of the country but it's, it's a, been a it's state a, holiday there for 40 years you know this thing is really important day it's really fascinating because in some ways this mirrors the way Thanksgiving became a national holiday in that it really was um, not a thing. It was sort of arbitrary when it was going to be in different communities. Um, and then we coalesced around this idea of the, 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 the famous sort of pilgrim's supper with the native people and Squanto bringing in the bounty to help the pilgrims. And, and we sort of seized on that as a nation in a similar somewhat ahistorical way in that it didn't really have much meaning elsewhere in the country. And yet it's this incredibly important singular American event, American holiday. Um, you know, some, many Americans say it's their favorite holiday. They gather around the table. And so I think that any criticism you might hear of Juneteenth as being a Texas thing, uh, not that I'm saying that w this panel is doing it, um, sort of isn't paying attention to the history that we do celebrate things that kind of evolve organically out of, um, you know, out of a somewhat uh, arbitrary moment. Um, Juneteenth doesn't really have much bearing on what went on in New York. Slavery uh, ended here effectively in about uh, 1827. Um, but I think I think the university universality of that I can't even talk this morning of that Texas story, I think, makes it work as as a, a narrative for a national event. And I think you're right. I think the events last year, George, George Floyd and, and, and all mm -hmm. the activism and all the the you know, people standing up uh, you know, against that last year kind of maybe helped propel this and, and helped evolve this into something more people were aware of, because at, at the time last year, everybody. Um, you know, involved in these protests, then then it evolved into a Juneteenth celebration here in Southampton. That's how that evolved. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Anything that gets Americans talking about the issue of slavery, yes. um, I think is important toward uh, a sense of reconciliation with our history and, and a sense of understanding that black Americans are part of the fabric of this country from, you know, 150 years before the Declaration of Independence, you know, a really, really fundamental group of people in the American story everywhere in in um, the 13 colonies and beyond um, that that has been overlooked. And, and this gets us talking about it. I think I think it's great. It is great. And, and I think it once again under, underscores, I think Denise was making this point a moment ago, this fight we're having over history. Hmm. What, what is the story? What is the American narrative? What is the story we're going to tell? Um, call it critical race theory if you want. Why not just tell the whole story? Uh, why, how has that become part of the culture wars in this country that you would want to talk about the existence of slavery, that you want to talk about the Constitution 
being written in Philadelphia in the three-fifths clause. Just read that clause. It's mm-hmm. really quite shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to argue about history in this country because it's now part of the culture wars. But mm-hmm. the shame of that is that we won't even recognize these incredibly important events uh, like soldiers coming into a, a, a Texas town in June 1865 and saying... Two, two years after the emancipation. Emancipation Proclamation. Two years after the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, that you're free. And the celebrations that went on, you can only imagine. Uh, I, I think one of the important this. things about um, commemorating Juneteenth, one of the important ways of commemorating that is, as the president said yesterday when he signed that bill, um, the end of slavery was really only just the beginning. You know, I mean, the thing, you know, racial oppression and uh, continued and continues to this day. And as um, Bobby Brown uh, Wednesday told the fifth grade students at Pulaski Street School, um, it's not it's also not just about blacks anymore. Those were his words. This is, you know, it's more than that. It's about uh, Asian discrimination. It's about discrimination against all non-white people in this country by the people who, um, you know, write the laws, who are in power, who want to rewrite history, and the people who write history in the first place. Um, You know, uh, we have to look at, are we doing the same thing when it comes to uh, writing about um, the Latino population here on where we live? Like, they're such a big part of our community and our uh, economy, but you know, how do we ha- how do we cover them? What do we do? I mean, I think we all need, as you know, here we are behind the headlines. We all yeah. really need to think about that in a critical way. Um, so, I, don't know, I think I don't it's so to- interesting uh, to talk about the Latino presence here um, and and compare that to the the African American enslaved and free presence here over the centuries because they're both economic stories and one of the things that that we've really observed as we begin to read the history is that if you follow the money um, you know during the years of slavery, you, it's inescapable. You, you just come up against it. And I think in the same way, if you follow the money today, you, you, you come up against this massive um, Latino workforce. Um, and and it, it's just, it's interesting, you know, economic history, you, you can't really hide those people in economic history. But if you tell history in terms of, you know, the great men and the great victories, you kind of, it kind of gets a little elided. So, so to the, you know, to the extent that it's about the economy, um, I think maybe as journalists, we, we probably could could do more in looking at the present flow of cash within our communities and, and who's who's doing the heavy lifting. And it's it's a really interesting and ongoing story. It's fascinating. And David, you had, had written a piece about the the African-American Museum for, for your upcoming magazine, correct? Yeah, um, I, I wrote about the co-founder Brenda Simmons, who is uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful. She's a uh, Southampton um, native. She grew up, I think, it was Halsey Avenue, uh, and her, you know, her her family. Uh, on both her mother and her father's side were part of the great migration out of the South. Um, her mother's family, eight siblings coming out of uh, uh, Waverly, Virginia, I think it is, uh, to Harlem, and her father from Currituck, North Carolina. And uh, they meet, uh, they, uh, family, a lot of family members start 
coming out to to Southampton, the first being one of Brenda's aunts who had a beautician's license. And she started working in a beauty parlor, which was half of this wonderful, um, you know, one side was for the men and one side for the women. And, you, you know, the, the women weren't allowed in the men and vice versa. Um, and uh, Brenda, as as a girl of about 12 or 13 years old, would would answer the phones, make take appointments, run errands, run up to the greasy spoon to get food. Um, you know, cut to to this year uh, to to tomorrow and and Sunday, um, a museum about the black presence on the East End is opening, and it it's fascinating because the the depth of stories and the depth of artifacts. I mean, just the building itself and other buildings like it. Um, you know that that many many white um people in southampton and east hampton just didn't know about that this was this whole separate world of of people um you know there was there was something in east hampton it's fascinating um brenda's dad noah simmons i think was the owner operator of a club in east hampton called the cottage inn right at which james brown and aretha franklin and the forerunners of the loving spoonful this is a steve boone is banned out of west hampton called the kingsman basically had had his debut there um, playing to a black audience. Um, you know, I searched these Tampa Star records for any reference to the Cottage Inn and, and to, you know, these folks being there. It just didn't exist. We weren't paying attention to that. Um, Where was it? Where was it? <laughs> you know, it's wonderful. It is currently the, are you sitting down? The East Hampton Town Senior Citizen Center <laughs> on Springs Fireplace Road. Uh, you know, maybe 30 years ago, it was a restaurant called, a bar restaurant called The Pipe Dream that had jazz on Thursday night or whatever it was. Um but it was it was an honest to God juke joint and restaurant. And, um, you know, it just wasn't part of the record. So by opening this museum, you know, Brenda and the other curators can can, um, you know, talk about that. And of course, the other thing going on in Southampton, which probably Annette knows more about than, than I really do, but is the Pierce Concert House and that effort to uh, which is actually hitting some snags to to rebuild this house on Pond Lane overlooking uh, Lake Agawam uh, to honor uh, a, a man who was freed from enslavement who went on to become a whaler and a business owner and uh, a philanthropist. Uh, he, he lived there uh, in the 19th century with his wife, Rachel, who sort of gets left out of the picture. Um, but there's been some real pushback. I think that there's a something like a $4 million plan to restore that building and build a museum well, of course, uh, in the heart of it they tore it down in the first place you know right. somebody who was going to build a house there and right they basically took down you know the building and they were going to build a house and then the then that project was abandoned and i believe that the pieces of the house are stored somewhere right some of the pieces yeah. are yeah so there's been some pushback which um you know again it's it's similar in a way perhaps to the 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 ice cream story on in Orient in that um, resistance is being framed by the people who favor this as uh, in part based on racial animosity. Um, you know, a, a, a rebuilding of a house for some illustrious white family might not have the same degree of um, resistance is, is what they're saying. Um, but I think that that is on track to happen eventually. Look, it took 16 years for the um, 
Southampton African-American Museum, which is on North Sea Road, by the way. Um, and hours have not been set yet. Brenda Simmons says they're working on it and we should look on the website to find out when to visit. Um, but but there was resistance too. I, the, the Southampton African-American Museum, the building, the barbershop, uh, the town bought it for $500,000 in 2006 from a guy named Randy Concert, a conquest. And uh, uh, there was... Um, even beyond pushback, I and mean, people were calling the Southampton Town Community uh, Preservation Fund manager at the time and asking, you know, what, why the hell was the town spending money on that piece of blankety blank? So yeah. um, I think the history of, of change, the history of recognizing people of color here is um, fraught, um, but it's moving along. I mean, this museum is going to open and it's gorgeous and it's it's going to be really well worth seeing. It's it, it's um, so 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 the museum, um, which yeah. is at two forty five North Sea Road, is having so so there were so there was a VIP reception scheduled for Friday, but on Saturday, right after you listen to this radio show, um, go down to the museum. There are tours, pre tours from eleven to twelve forty five. At one o'clock, there's going to be some performances. And 2.30 p.m. is the opening ceremony um, moderated and led by Brenda Simmons. There will be a panel discussion about the history of black barbershops and beauty parlors. Um, so everybody should be able to uh, to make that. What a great event. And I just say yeah. that's such a great focus for a museum. You know, it sort of hits that time frame that, you know, a lot of people don't think of history as being, you know, I'm guessing this would be like the 40s, 50s, 60s. But that's I right. It was a black middle class in Southampton. Yeah, that's just a, such a cool, you know, it doesn't have to be ancient history to be really interesting, I don't think, you know. Well, and it's 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 nice where you, you can take a, a piece, a, a chunk of that and really focus on one thing rather than trying to do this huge overview that, you know, that, that tends to be, um, you know, a little out of reach sometimes maybe. Um, you're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW FM 88.3. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group. My co-host, Annette Hinkle, Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. Our panel today, David Rattray, Editor of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti, Editor and Publisher of Riverhead Local, and Steve Wick, Executive Editor of the Times Review Media Group. David, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Truck Beach and the latest <laughs> that's going on there. I, I guess the uh, the Baymen are saying no, huh? <laughs> well, this is, you know, the, the fight over who has access to the beach, particularly on the ocean side, but in the bays as well, you know, is, is as old as the Hamptons. And, and um, in this case, there's a group of property own, owners, property owners associations on the ocean beach east of Amagansett. Uh, in the Napig section, who won um, a, a, a court decision basically saying that they indeed owned the beach all the way down to the high tide line and that they had the right to block access. And, now, and this is one of the, the most popular uh, or, or the only beach driving or, or be, where, where beach driving was allowed in, in, in East Hampton. Well, right? during the day, that's that's right. right. There was an access where you could uh, and many people do did. And, you know, hundreds of vehicles on a Sunday in July and August would um, go down there and park kind of tailgate style, you know, side by side, backed up, uh, you know, lower the lower the back, you know, put out the. Um, beach chairs and the barbecue and the umbrella and whatever and make a day of it, bring the family. Um, 
uh, family members from out of town who happen to have four wheel drives and in, in a coveted East Hampton beach sticker could drive out there. So you would get this scene of, you know, a mile and a half of trucks lined wow. up along the beach with people doing their thing. Now, there's no lifeguards, no public bathrooms, no uh, emergency equipment, no nothing. Uh, but it was a way for people to get to the beach. It became super popular, really, in the last decade. There was a little bit of it before that, but it's not, you know, it's one of those things that passed for tradition because people had been doing it for, you know, a decade or something like that. But you can imagine these homeowners in these, you know, multi-million dollar properties, you know, uh, sued uh, in, in 2009 to, to say, this is ours and, and keep off. So having won that lawsuit, uh, they're now claiming that everyone is excluded, including commercial fishermen who may have a very, very strong claim of right of access. Because the commercial fishermen in in um, town law uh, and and historically in colonial law had a, had a special place, and that that. that the, the judges even acknowledge this. So the confrontation could be as early as this weekend in wow. which Bayman, commercial fishermen may, as they say, storm the beaches <laughs> to, you know, basically threaten the, you know, challenge the property owners to have them arrested. Um, town cops, I don't know what they're going to do if, you know, a couple hundred four wheel drive trucks with families and nets and people and fishing rods you know, descend on it. Um, you know, this, you know, every summer you sort of have the, the, the story of the summer, this may shape up to be ours, but I think it's a greater issue really for all of the East end towns that derive beach access rights from these, uh, colonial era patents as they're called. Uh, if this is allowed to stand, um, could, could threaten it in, in any yeah. of the towns here really could. Many years ago, I remember, um, when I was writing for Newsday, I went with, uh, Jens Lester's Halsane crew, right. uh, was probably the last Halsaning crew out there. I think they That's were right. the supervision of the DEC. And we were at a place in Sagaponic where they were launching their dories. And I was with them for a couple of days, David. And one day they were pulling a net in and some fish and a guy drove down there in his Range Rover from one of the mansions <laughs> and started screaming yeah. at Jens Lester's crew. These are people who've been there since, you know, colonial days mm-hmm. doing what they'd always mm-hmm. done on the beach where they'd always yeah. gone to make a livelihood. And this guy comes down in a Range Rover and starts yelling at them. Right. And I went over to talk to him about it. And I, he said, I don't want this anymore. I said, well, they've been doing it for 300 years. <laughs> no, I, I don't want it anymore. And the, the fact that this is still going on is, yeah. is it t- strikes me as a tragedy. Mm. Well, I, I mean, think there's an interest- have moved away. They're gone. As yeah. A it's an interesting question, you know, where, where you ask a judge who's not from the East End to grapple with a piece of um, in, in this case would be 17th century writing, which allows ye townsmen to spread ye nets as they have before. Uh, in perpetuity or, or some language like that, you know, what does that mean in, in uh, you know, 21st century um, America? And, and uh, was it was the intent there? I mean, I mean, certainly they, they couldn't um, uh, imagine driving trucks out onto the beach. But but is that the intent? I think that's the argument. And, and that's right. It's, it's frankly, it's like the Second Amendment. Uh, Second Amendment. Yeah. With the, yeah. the you know, the, the right to bear arms, um, you know, no one anticipated 
uh, weapons that could fire, I don't know how many rounds in a, in a second. Um, you know, in those days, it took, what, a minute if you were good to reload a musket. Um, but I think there, so there is a somewhat of a standard in this country of updating these colonial era or early Republic era um, language uh, to, to current standards. Um, it may be that uh, the judges that deal with this on appeal decide that it is fishing only and they will issue a special fishing permit, which is how it works in state parks. Right now, you can get a four-wheel drive permit to drive on the ocean beach, and it says right on it, for fishing only. And you have to have fishing gear and this and that. Same thing in the county. Um, but uh, the, the, the sort of the, the back pocket thing is that the town of East Hampton has committed itself verbally to condemning this ribbon of beach to preserve the, the giant tailgate thing. I, um, I think that's going to be the only solution. It's either that or give up the fight, right? I mean, well, that's, yeah. yeah, what's really sad is if they go the condemnation route, that's what really threatens the rest of the East End towns because that really undermines the philosophy of these colonial era uh, agreements. So, right. so this is one... The fact of the matter is, if you, you know, you can go back and read Men's Lives, Peter Matheson's book, you can, you can read about this entire culture. Right. Once again, we're reminded that the East End has completely changed and it's yeah. no longer what it once was. Yeah. Whether we're talking history and arguing about what it means, or we're talking about a Boniker community that's been there since the 17th century uh, and always counted on those beaches and it's everything has changed now. Well, the native people before them, right? For, the for tens of thousands of years. The shore whaling that the, the native yeah. people did. Particularly um, the, uh, drift whales, a whale that would wash up, the native people would, would take and use. Um, the history yeah. is extraordinary there. Yeah. But just to see, once again, we're battling over who, who goes on the beach. Yeah. And the millionaires are upset about it is it, really astonishing. I guess yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens this weekend. Denise, you you uh, you wanted to talk about uh, cannabis opting out. There was a, a another big meeting in, in Riverhead this week to decide whether whether the town should opt out of uh, sales and, and public use. Right. Yeah. Well, the Riverhead Town Board actually um, put a proposed local op, uh, proposed local law to opt out on uh, up for public hearing, and there was a public hearing on it uh, uh, Tuesday night. Uh, the town had conducted an online survey and got over 1400 responses to it um which were uh, 73 percent most uh 70 over 70 so i was either 71 or 73 percent that we were um in favor of um cannabis stores marijuana dispensaries and um <clears throat> they decided that Maybe that rep, that survey wasn't representative of the entire community. Maybe the people who answered really didn't live here, though they did ask for people's addresses. And I have to say, I was astonished to see that most people actually put their addresses down. Um, but uh, does, so they, does that mean they just disagreed with the responses? I, they didn't say that. <laughs> I, I no, I, I think we need to do a better know. survey. Um, I, I have my I have my um, my theory. If you want to hear my theory, I sure. think that. Um, like all uh, astute politicians, or maybe all politicians, uh, they would like to have someone else make this decision. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to be, uh, you know, the town board that allowed pot shops in on Main Street. I don't know. But anyway, that's just uh, speculation. But um, so they put this up for a public hearing um, with uh, one of the things being said that, well, maybe, you know, there are 
they they use the the older the elderly on the internet uh, rationale like that older people seniors don't access the internet which you know i don't know i i can i can say for sure there's more than one senior on the zoom call right now right so, so well you and me uh, I don't now know. pretty much ev- everyone that went to woodstock is the senior so i don't know who <laughs> yeah, they're thinking about and they're interested in that oh, anyway so they had a, a marathon hearing the other night on this law uh this proposed law and uh, it will be interesting to see uh, what they do with it. Um, people were split. There were people, uh, including a couple of town officials, the, uh, the uh, director of the Riverhead Industrial Development Agency and the director of the Community Development Agency uh, spoke up and opposed it. Um, some other people opposed it. Some people favored it. And the town board, you know, listened. So now uh, they're going to have to make a decision whether or not to adopt this law. And then, of course, that triggers the uh, mandatory uh, 45-day waiting period within which uh, people can circulate a petition, essentially in opposition to the opt-out law. So, and, what, what's the what's the de- what's the time timeline on that? If they if if a municipality wanted to adopt that law and then have the 45 days so uh, before the of, end of the year, that's kind of an interesting question, and I'll try to distill it without getting too much into the weeds. But uh, wish me luck. There's um. There's a kind of a, that's kind of an interesting question. The the you've got the 45 day period operating up against this um, deadline to get something on the ballot, right? Right. So you know the longer you wait to do this, the that window closes, you know. And then you've got the marijuana legislation passed by the state that says you have to if you want to opt out, you got to do it by December 31st. So after after December 31st, if you have opted out, you can opt it. You can rescind that law and then allow sales in your in your jurisdiction if you're a town, right? But presumably, the the municipalities would want to get it on the November ballot with everything else, rather than holding a special election. Which otherwise, there have to be a special election. And the way the deadlines work, um, so here's the interesting thing: uh, the state uh, amended the election law uh, two years ago, January 2019, to uh, say that. Ballot propositions have to be to the county board of elections by uh, th- three months prior to the election day. And the uh, section of law that governs the permissive referendum, which are the referendum by permission, which is what this is called, uh, if they if they do a referendum, if they want to have a referendum, that section of the law says 60 days. So, like, which one controls? Like, mm. do they have to have it there before 60 days or, or three months, 90 days? And so I spoke to the uh, State Board of Elections, and he said, well, we have the, our law, and the, the towns think they have they law, their law, and if the County Board of Elections uh, rejects this proposition because it's coming in after the three months, uh, they'll have to go to court. But he couldn't say whether the County Board of Elections would or should or would be allowed to do that. Um, The uh, deputy town attorney in Riverhead told me that the uh, Association of Towns lawyer that counsels town governments uh, is going with the 60 days. So um, if it's if it is, if it turns out to be that the County Board of Elections is going to go with the three months, they are already past their deadline. They, they can't. They can't make it happen. Oh, that's of interesting. 45-day period. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But if I had to guess, I would guess that the town board in our town, anyway, is going to uh, 
adopt it and say, let the people decide. Um, and we'll see if there's actually a, a referendum on it. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, all the, all the other towns and villages are, are looking at the same question. And I think we said earlier that, um, that I think the the first one the first one brave enough to make a decision I think probably the others will will follow will follow suit. Um, Steve, we're we're quickly running out of time here, but do you want to just quickly talk about um, um, Bob Lipa's article on, on the on the satchel game? Hey, I think Bob, that would Bob be a really a, really nice way to end the show. Yeah, Bob has just a great story this week. It's 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 I think it's kind of the story of 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 the of the week and certainly maybe of the month that. In 1950, um, Satchel Paige, the great legendary baseball player, Negro League player, et cetera, um, came to play a game in Riverhead. Um, they played um, before about 6,000 people. Um, the history of it wasn't really known, like so much history around here wasn't really known. Um, and Bob has written this really long, very good story about the game itself. And you will see, uh, if you look at either the Riverhead News Review or the Suffolk Times, you will see that um, Carl Yaskremski Jr., the great Bridgehampton baseball player, was a bad boy for the Riverhead team. Um, it's, it's an astonishing picture. Uh, you can see all this. Um, it, it's just, again, I don't think anyone in Riverhead even knew this. And here it is uh, being told now that that Satchel Page brought his team. They played a Riverhead team. It was just—it's an astonishing thing, and and again, to my eye, it's not a sports story at all. It's a culture story. It's about an event that took place in 1950 that has largely been kind of not told. It's a mm. great story. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, I, I loved it. It's it's really it's a it's a gem, and it, you're right. It's not a sports story. It's a a, a human story. Um, you know, I, I love that that the, you guys were able to track down a, a player who 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 faced Paige, you know, and um, got struck out. So it, it's yeah, just he, it's great. He said, um, when Bob <laughs> talked to him, he said, "Well, I had three pitches. The guy threw three pitches at me. That was it." Um, <laughs> so it's it's again, it's an event that drew a huge crowd that had Carl Yaskremski Jr. just running around picking up bats off the ground. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's so it's so neat when we can when we can tell those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. you've been listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW FM eighty eight point three. I'm Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. I was joined by my co-host Annette Hinkle. Thank you so much to our guests this week: David Rattray, editor of the East Hampton Star; Denise Civiletti, editor and publisher of Riverhead Local; and Steve Wick, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Excellent show as always, guys. Thank you so much for thank you for having us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.